Welcome to Lonely Cello. Hello, and welcome to Lonely Cello. I'm your host, Emily Wright, and today is an especially lonely, lonely cello because it's just me. Um, I decided to do an episode that is a Q&A, so some frequently asked questions, and then some questions that have actually been submitted by people over the past week or two. Um, so, oh, before I get into this, though, the next episode, I think, is one that's going to be meaningful for a lot of you out there, um, and it is... A discussion on the question, what even is a professional musician anymore? Um, so it's going to be talking about the gatekeeping, the um, the qualities that make somebody a professional musician, and they might not be actually what you think they are. Uh, there are plenty of people who went to music school and still play, but they get most of their money, if not all of it, from doing something else. Then there are some people who have done something else for their entire life, but they're extraordinarily proficient at the instrument. Um, And then there's a kind of skill set that is kind of separate from either of those two things. And that's kind of the nexus of where professionalism in music lies. And we're going to have as a guest, uh, Jeremy Bursma, who is a good friend, a former student, um, and now one of my esteemed colleagues. He's somebody who made the leap from doing something else entirely as a living to now being a professional cellist, fabulous educator, and an all-around just stellar dude. I'm biased, but um, I think you'll agree. Anyway, so that's our conversation next time. But for today, we're going to start out with a question that I'm so glad somebody asked. Um, And the question is basically, how do I teach, or maybe it's even, how does one teach musicality and expression to students? Um, And there are two main areas of emphasis. So number one, it's just like, what does the music call for, right? We have to be sensitive to that. And then the other one is, how do you as a human being become expressive on an instrument? So let's start with just looking at what the music itself calls for. So um, you go through and you're looking at your music and congratulations, you come upon Piano Espressivo. Well, great, I know it's quiet and it's expressive. Expressive of what? I don't know, because there are so many different things, right? You could be expressing longing, expressing sorrow, uh, expressing anticipation, right? You Maybe anticipation is something that happens quietly at first and then gets louder. So there's a couple ways that you can tell what a piece is asking for. Uh, the first one is, why don't you just go ahead and have a listen through? And especially if there's a piece that I don't know that well. So for instance, right now I'm playing the Prokofiev uh, Sonata. I've never listened to it actually that much. Listened to it a couple times, which is how I knew I wanted to play it. But you know, I didn't have many of the themes memorized or anything like that. I didn't really have a sense of an emotional map of the piece. So I like to go through and just listen and make little marks with like a little post-it note or something. Just, ah, here's a character change. Here's a mood change, stuff like that. And then 
when you go through and you listen, really try to key into the intuitive, emotional part of yourself. Don't look at this, your first pass through with an academic mindset. So I go with my instincts on a passage, what picture, what character comes to mind. So for instance, lots of the Prokofiev, it brings to mind a very impressionistic, very French watercolor kind of style throughout. Not the entire thing, of course, but just that's kind of an overarching mood. And that really helps me make better decisions technically and artistically on the instrument so that it can kind of be conveyed sharply, succinctly. So it's very clear. Um, Then also a process of elimination is really useful. So if you can't exactly tell, for instance, I said the Prokofiev is impressionistic. What does that even mean? Okay, okay, yes, you're right. But what does it not mean, right? In philosophy, they say you can learn a lot about defining P if you define first not P. So what is it not? Well, you know, maybe it's not aggressive. Maybe it's not angry. Maybe it's not overly joyful. Okay, well, just taking those three key pieces out actually leaves you with a fairly narrow down set of variables. Um, And then also you can sort it then into classes. So is it aggressive or passive? Because you can be aggressively sad, right? That kind of is more like upset. Or you can be passively sad. That's more like longing and nostalgia, stuff like that. Um, So, and then the last thing to do is pay attention to how the emotion gets portrayed. What has the composer done to get the point across? So, for instance, we have variables like volume, especially cellists. Um, God bless us, but we tend to do everything with an F after it, right? Like... It's mezzo forte. It's forte. It's fortissimo. Can I get a fortississimo? Right? Like, that's so much of what we love to play. And our instrument is giant and loud anyway. So be very sensitive to where the dynamic level begins, where it ends. Because we do... We do need to start softly if we want our loud playing to have an impact. Otherwise, we're just bellowing. We're just shouting all the time. And that just dilutes any emotional impact that our playing has. Um, Articulation, right? Short, long, in between. Are these notes that are, do they have lines? Is it a dot and a line? Um, Listen to the beginning and the end of the note. The end of the note is just as expressive as the beginning of the note. Um, And then there's also the harmonic implications. So for instance, are we playing a single note a whole bunch and the either the accompaniment or the other players are actually harmonically changing what our single note means? Um, There is, you know, orchestration. So for instance, when we're playing, this is really important actually, like in a community orchestra setting. So for instance, cellos, let's say we don't have the melody, but we're still trying to emote on the instrument so that we can contribute to the, you know, picture as a whole. Who is playing the melody? Because different timbred instruments have different emotional implications, especially when you start adding in all these other things, volume and articulation and harmony, right? So listening to who has the melody, are we matching, are we contrasting? How does our line relate to what that line is doing? Are we supporting? Are we like a a gauzy texture? 
Are, are we playing repeated quicker notes? Are we the engine? Are we driving that line? Really important to understand this stuff. And if you don't know, and if you can't tell by listening to a professional recording, I guarantee you, your conductor will, at the break, not during rehearsal, love you for asking this question. Absolutely love you for it. Uh, and so will the people actually playing the, the melody that you're supporting. Um, and then the note choice in melodies, of course, is hugely important. So what is the line doing? Is it moving? Is it stepwise? Is it chromatic? Um, and then within that, look at intervallic leaps or not, right? They are a way to create huge drama. Um, and if you start learning to look for these things and then really play what's on the page. So for instance, um, it's very different to have like an octave leap that has no dynamic change as opposed to an octave leap that if you're anything like me, it takes all of my willpower not to crescendo during something like that, right? So just getting into brass tacks, let's just pretend we're trying to decide how to emote an octave leap. Let's say it goes kind of high also. Um, I just want you to hear an octave in your head if you can, or if you can't hear it, go to your piano or go play it on your instrument, you know, the next time you're, you're at it. And if we're going to play it, let's just say over a slur, think about how landing on the higher note changes the attitude with which a listener would perceive it. So for instance, if you clobber that high note, that is declarative, authoritative, um, it can be angry. Um, what about if you stay at the same dynamic level? What if that level is actually a uh, pianissimo? What if you play it in the upper half of the bow? What if you play it in the middle of the bow? What if you start it on an up bow at the tip? All of these things radically change the emotional impact of those notes. So it's really important to play what's on the page as opposed to what comes naturally. Uh, you know, what what is affectation, and we all have them, just be aware of them so that you can neutralize them when it comes time to play with expression. So now here's the other part, the juicy part. How do you emote on the instrument? Well, I'll tell you first off that there is no, it's not like it's magic, and it's not like you have to have a certain level of technical facility to open the doors to playing emotively. The reason I know that is, first of all, I see it in some of my students, but also in myself. I was um, a natural at emoting. I was not a natural at playing with technical facility for the first couple of years, um, as all of my ASTA competition notes will, will prove out. Um, it was always like, oh, really, I could just feel it. But like, you did not learn all the notes of this piece, young lady. <laughs> Go back behind the woodshed and figure out how to play dance rustique, please. Um, anyway, but you already have the skills because we change our, the emotion that we portray to other people all the time. And I just want you to think about this in terms of, for instance, an interaction you have with somebody in a retail environment. You're having a terrible day, but you have to be there. You have to go to Target and get your thing. And the person who is the checker or somebody who's helping you find something is like, how are you today? And just because in, at least in the United States, we tend not to burden the people that we 
uh, come into contact with you in that in that environment, we do not burden them with authenticity. Um, you can just immediately put on that layer of, oh, I'm doing great. How about you? And everything changes in that moment. There's extra energy that's expended. Your face changes. Your body language changes. Um, and we do that several times a day, right? We, we change from whatever we are into whatever is appropriate for a professional environment or whatever is best for our loved ones, whatever is best for our friends. Um, so that change, that flexibility of the way we portray ourselves emotionally is already a skill and doubly so if you've ever done any acting. And I mean any, like even in elementary, middle school, any of these things, you are already there. Um, so then what I'd like to have my students do is just start on a single note and you decide on a character, an image, or a mood. And sad, by the way, does tend to be easier. Here's why. When you're in a good mood, it still feels kind of good to pretend to be sad. When you're sad, it's pretty easy to be sad and to communicate sadness. But if you are having a low energy day, if you're having a terrible day, it feels good to get sad out onto the instrument, but it is a Herculean effort to get joyful, happy, agitated, whatever, out onto the instrument. So I feel like that is just an easier thing to draw on because the human experience like spares none of us, <laughs> right? So you decide on this character, an image or a mood. And I really mean like an image. If there's a painting or um, uh, a scene from a movie that particularly grabbed you, just, just have that in your mind. Find the note that you are going to play. Make it a comfortable note. Make it your favorite string, favorite finger. It can even be an open string, no problem. Um, find the note out of character because that happens with your more academic thinking mind. Um, and you just don't want to like worry at all about finding your notes. So you find your notes in tune. Hallelujah. Then what I'd like you to do, and this is something that Daniel Heifetz taught me at an ASTA workshop, actually about teaching younger people to emote, but I think it's true for everybody. He talked about inhaling the character. And that is basically just the moment when you go from being mild-mannered Clark Kent to being super cello, right? So you, you breathe in the character and it doesn't just mean like a normal inhale. So for instance, if I'm being sad, somber, I'm going to take a slow inhale, right? If I'm starting something that's agitated, you might hear, right? Not only because it's the the tempo of the piece, but also that's the spirit of that first note. So you inhale, you take that moment to get into character and then you place the bow in that character. Or if you're a pianist, right? You, you adopt a posture with your hands above the key in that character. So again, if we're rolling with sad and somber and things like that, that's gonna be a slow, low energy movement. Quickness is not going to convey sadness nearly as well as taking your time. Um, and then you exhale the character and halfway through that slow exhale, you start the note. You practice that a couple times and then see if you can modulate the character a little bit. 
Um, again, it's easier within the like sad realm. So you can try to go from mournful to nostalgic to missing. And then once those things sort of like um, are, are, if not reliable, you can at least kind of like scroll through them in your musical emotional lexicon. Then you can start moving to other things that are on the softer side. So for instance, um, sad and lullaby are actually pretty close together in terms of the technique required to achieve them. Um, so I, tr I tell my students, for instance, when we're learning how to play softly to um, pretend like there's a baby right in front of your instrument. And then if we're trying to do like that, but maybe mezzo piano, okay, the baby's in the other room, right? But through a door. So then just like we did when we were analyzing what the music asks of us, we can start looking at things to eliminate. So if you're like, I don't technically know how to make nostalgia come out of my instrument, even if I feel it. So what you do first is you just start eliminating. For instance, does do you think nostalgia is going to have a marked beginning of the bow? Probably not. Um, so then what can I technically do to avoid that? Well, there are bunches of things I can do, but I think the first one I would do is I would move out of the immediate area of the frog, right? Because you can get a sound without demarcation at the beginning, right at the frog, but it's work. So the rule is, if you want a marked sound, you can have it anywhere, but if it's at the balance point or further forward, you have to work for it. If it's at the frog to the balance point, you have to work to avoid that, right? So I'm gonna be either at the balance point halfway through the bow, then how am I gonna begin that note? Am I going to push down? Am I gonna engage the string? Am I gonna coast along the top of the string? Well, that depends on what I want, and this is where you have to experiment. Um, but combining these two things, so playing exactly what's on the page, having an idea of what specifically is wanted, and then going through, getting into character, and then playing process of elimination with your technical nuts and bolts, that is how emoting on the instrument is taught in my studio. Um, and it is something that Sometimes it takes a while for students to relax enough to emote in front of me, but it is something that I think pretty much everybody has gotten a hold of once we just kind of establish the ground rules. So hopefully this is helpful. And if you have any follow-up questions on this particular one, I am super happy to address them. Also, I do have a video on YouTube that shows me inhaling and changing my character. Um, it's... I think it's just called emoting on the instrument. Okay, so that's our first question. Okay, so our next question was, are these starker trills worth it? Or are they just a one-way ticket to tendonitis? Um, I'll say this. You can become excellent at trills and at cello without doing them. And I think the, the thing about the starker trills and to a lesser extent some of like the gnarly Kosman exercises is they are a wonderful proving ground for one of the most fundamental things in terms of being a healthy and technically sound cellist and that is you need to be okay 
with being imperfect, sounding terrible, and coming up against your current technical limitations without employing tension and injury-causing like physical postures to muscle yourself into getting them correct. So, and you know, take it from me, I'm somebody who's had so many injuries. I'm like extraordinarily injury prone. Um, And it is so important to be able to just sit with the difficulty, be technically accurate, but also, um, I don't want to say sloppy, but be okay with untidiness and let the, let the learning process take as long as it takes to not just learn how to do the thing, but to do it sustainably. That's the most important thing. And so, of course, the starker trills are brutally difficult. And especially for those of us who did not encounter them as little cellists. So right when our mind and our hands were more flexible and more resilient. But I think it's a good thing to get on into those, do them in small chunks, have a good laugh, but also just watch, and and I'm speaking now specifically here about these trill exercises, to be able to do them without hardening the palm of your hand without mashing the thumb into the back of the neck or as it gets into thumb position, without smashing your thumb into the string using just your thumb muscle, right? The arm really needs to be used to hold the thumb down. Like 95% of that pressure comes from the arm. Um, And playing it at a speed at which you can actually play it. Not even well, just at which you can do the thing calmly. And that is also, um, this is an FAQ question, so I might as well just kind of segue into that, that in order to play well fast, you need to play slowly, not just because um, you need to know the notes deeply, but you need to learn something that you intend to play quickly with zero uh, sense of dread, anxiety, freneticism. Um, It needs to feel easy and lyrical and natural in your hand. And then every time you go to speed it up, you don't just do a check for accuracy in terms of like, is my left or my right hand doing the thing at the right speed? But we're actually looking for a qualitative measurement. Am I still as chilled out at this new speed, 10 BPM faster? Do I feel that same sense of like boredom and that things are kind of under control. And then as you keep turning up the heat, that your inner kind of BS detector doesn't start going off. Because what happens, and I have firsthand knowledge of this, and I think a lot of you do, like people will run into what I feel like there's like a speed limit, right? It's like a rental car. <laughs> and you'll just, you won't be able to go faster than 85 no matter what. So, what, what happens is if you learn a passage with a kernel of anxiety or fear or dread or an actual like quantitative problem in your hand, right? Like you have an inefficient shift. You haven't measured the distances accurately enough. You're kind of getting it by luck. 
what happens is you speed it up as those tendencies get amplified. So your luck runs out faster. The anxiety and the dread grow absolutely orders of magnitude every time that metronome goes faster and faster. Um, and in terms of neuroscience, the way you have to learn those passages, now this is not necessarily about emotional regulation, but about the physical phenomena, we actually learn it just the same way that we learn like phone numbers. Not, not that everybody has a smartphone, like what is even a phone number? I have four of them memorized, I think. But we learn in chunks. So, right, the phone number is, you know, 555. One, three, one, two. Those are two chunks of numbers that go together. That's exactly how fast playing feels in the hands. It doesn't feel like individual finger strokes. It feels like either handfuls, passages, sections, positions, um, because when it does go so fast, there is no way to mindfulness your way into really feeling every single one of those notes intently. You can't get there with like the thinking part of your brain. This has to be more like spinal cord memory. Um, so that is kind of, that's actually a kernel that's at the, the middle of a lot of my approach is that the most important thing, more even important than what you are doing anything is how you are doing. Because as you practice, we get good at not just what we practice, but how we practice. And so whatever emotional um, stuff you have embedded in your practice, whatever deals, technical deals with the devil you're making, those get woven into how you play your instrument. And it doesn't turn away just be, uh, sorry, just doesn't turn off or go away because you would like it to. You have to actually wrestle yourself under control in your practice and eliminate those things because otherwise they become more and more intense, not only with time, but as you speed things up. Okay, so here is another question. This is, if you could have a do-over of anything in your career, what would you do? Um, that is a very interesting and provocative question. <laughs> um, and it's actually something I thought about kind of a lot um, over the past kind of four or five years. And although there were definitely mistakes I've made as a professional, um, the main thing that I would change is that I would not have wasted as much time feeling guilty in terms of holding other people accountable, either like just by my behavior, you know, not interacting with them or even some of the actions that I took. Um, specifically, um, I'm not gonna name names, <laughs> um, but um, in, especially in Los Angeles, um, influential musicians can be held in a sort of untouchable regard. And um, there were several male colleagues of mine that would, they would hold out the proposition of helping my career in exchange for not sex explicitly, but it was in there somewhere. Um, in fact, one of these people was a former teacher of mine. No, it was not Ron Leonard. 
good grief. That man was always extraordinarily kind and professional. So just want to put that out there. Um, somebody, and not Hans, of course, not Hans Jensen, holy shit. Um, but, um, but he would make really gross insinuations and he would invite me over to his house for wine when his wife wasn't there. And I love his wife. She's amazing. And he wrote me explicit emails about his fantasies and just really depraved, terrible stuff. And then I finally had had enough. Here's the crazy thing. I told the other person, this other colleague of mine, hey, um, check out this email I just got sent because I think it's wild and inappropriate and gross and I don't know if I wanna sit next to him on the next studio date. And she wrote back, Emily, get in line. Like, this is how it works. And people like you ruin everything. So that was shocking. And I felt embarrassed and somehow ungrateful. Like, look at all of this that they're offering me. And I have the temerity to have feelings about it. But you know what? It just bothered me still. And so the next day, I wrote an email saying, hey, you know what? I'm sure I'm the one who's neurotic here. I'm so angry at myself for saying that, by the way, um, because it's actually called having character. <laughs> um, and I said, um, but I really didn't know what to make of your comments. I feel like I have to really draw inside the lines in my relationships. And I have a partner and I know he wouldn't appreciate those advances. I happen to really love and respect your wife and I'm sure she wouldn't appreciate you making those advances. And I see you as a professional colleague and I think it's really important to not blur those lines. Um, and he didn't write anything. And then I was so worried, you know, we've all sent an email and then like hid under the desk, like after you sent it, I was like, what have I done? What have I done? And then I moved out here uh, to the East Coast, partially because actually pushing back on some of this stuff, I wouldn't say I got blacklisted, but it became a lot harder to work as I became known for somebody who, as somebody who wouldn't play the game. Um, and then I wrote him some sort of conciliatory email to which, by the way, he responded to right away. And like the game was on again. And that was just gross. Um, and there are countless things like that, countless insinuations, um, situations I was put in, um, uh, sexual assault to actually be honest and get a little bit heavy. I had somebody say, yeah, I will absolutely get you a meeting with this person. And we, I thought it was a business dinner we were having. And at the end of the night, he crushed me against his car and kissed me through gritted teeth. And I had to push him away. And he's like, you have no idea how badly you just blew this. So I felt bad about that though. I even went to my parents and they were like, well, I mean, if this is the way it works, this is the way it works. So it was like really gross to be inundated on nearly all sides with that. Um, so if I, if I was going to have a, a do-over, I would have held the line actually a lot harder. I still, strangely enough, would not feel comfortable naming names. Um, 
And I don't know if that's because I'm afraid of the backlash. I mean, I already had pretty significant backlash, but if they would really come after me, um, but I just, I don't feel, I, I w wouldn't feel comfortable naming names, but that is, that is a do-over I would like, because I really did expend a lot of energy feeling bad about something that now I know there was nothing to be sorry about. It was other people crossing the line, not me. And then the last one that we're going to do today is, let's see. Yeah, we'll do this one. So what is an experience that uh, came like early in your musical development that you still think about today? Um, I think my time at Idlewild really, I think about like all the time in terms of how serious it was, but also how much joy there was in the process of learning the super intense stuff. Like every single summer I would go up there and I would level up. It was just insane. And I want that for my students. I mean, that's part of why I'm doing this Tamarack Arts thing, right? Going to establish a center where students can come up and be taken seriously and be pushed and honed and uh, really feel also like they have their people. You know, you meet people who are just like you, who want the same things that, that you do. That's incredibly liberating um, and validating. But I have to say, if there's like a particular moment, I think a lot about a rehearsal we had and we were playing Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, which is still like a piece that is just, that as soon as I heard that piece, it just like became part of my DNA, right? And that's incredibly ambitious repertoire. I think I was 15 at the time, um, buried way in the back of the cello section. But like, I think I was 18th out of 22, 22 cellos, I know, can you imagine? Anyway. Um, and I just remember Larry Livingston, our conductor, he told us, first of all, he told us the stories of each of these movements. Again, going back to the beginning of this episode, talking about knowing what the music calls for. Not only did he give us specific directions, and we were definitely following what was on the page and watching his body, right, to kind of telegraph what he was doing, but also he would give us a very vivid picture. And so I'm remembering like the the movement that's about you know bluebeard's castle and like the story of that and the tension that's in that and i just remember being on the stage it was a full orchestra rehearsal and i felt like we were part of like this giant organism and all of the cells of the organism were agreeing about the purpose of each of those moments and we were kind of looking at each other, watching the conductor playing, and it was a very quiet section that kind of began to swell and kind of move very much like, again, Bluebeard's Castle, right? Like it's out in the water and there's like, you know, wayfaring, seafaring themes as well as, you know, these other things because it's bar talk, right? So it's going to have layers. But afterward... After we finished that movement, and again, it was just a run-through in a rehearsal, I was one of at least a dozen people around me that actually had tears streaming down our faces. And it was like this moment of complete accord, and it just showed not only what, like, humanity can do right Bartok wrote this thing but also Larry Livingston a consummate professional chose to spend his summers with us kids and uh, we were not perfect 
you know, like we, we were still kids, but um, on the stage, we were getting that very early professional training. And it really was a moment where music kind of crystallized as the vehicle I wanted to use to, to like find meaning in my life for the rest of my life. And that is, that moment is at the heart of all of the times when I had other opportunities presented to me or when I was super injured and it really seemed like it was a better idea to do something else with my life. That moment shines like a beacon and centers me when it seems like maybe this is too hard. Um, And I think about that and I want my students to have that moment as well. And that's why I'm hard on them. (laughs) And that's why I keep driving. And that's why I say, nope, that's not quite it. But that's also why I get tears streaming down my face when they do find it. It's like, it's just such a beautiful thing. And I'm no Larry Livingston, but I hope to have just even an iota of that devotion and dedication and those communication skills that he brought to us those summers in the, in the early nineties up at, up at Idlewild. So that's, um, that's kind of like the crystal at, at the middle of who I am. That's, that's what shines out from, from me all the time. I'm always looking for that moment again. And I found it a couple times. So thank you for listening. This has been Lonely Cello. Um, you are welcome to uh, contact me. It's contact at emilywright.net. You can find me on Instagram, emilywrightcello, on Twitter, emilycello. And I welcome your questions, comments. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time. Bye.